Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, where I will read beginning in verse 14 through verse 18. And this is the word of the Lord. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, And if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Father, may all of that rejoicing that Paul mentions become part of Redeemer Baptist Church because of the way we respond even to this portion of your word and all that lies behind it in the earlier verses. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We saw previously in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 here in Philippians that we are commanded as the people of God to work out the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. To live out in our daily lives the fact that we have been delivered from the penalty and the power of sin. And to do so consistently, urgently, seriously, and confidently as we realize that God is working in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. We also noted that this command to work out our salvation is closely tied to the earlier injunction that we have seen in chapter 1, that we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 27. The injunction to live our lives in a way that reflects the immense value of the good news about who God is. The good news about what God has done and is doing and will do in Christ Jesus. And to do so by striving together for the faith of the gospel as believers living in an antagonistic world, properly interacting with each other as believers, guided by the self-humbling example of none other than our Lord, Jesus Christ, as we have seen in the first five verses of this second chapter of Paul's letter. Well, both history and experience tell us that this unity, this cooperation to which the gospel calls us and which our salvation enables is effectively squelched. Whenever believers go around gossiping and complaining about each other, or whenever they're arguing with each other. So it's not really any surprise, or at least it shouldn't be, any surprise at all to find 
as we approach our text for this evening, that we are told to do all things without complaining or disputing. All things. Especially when we must keep in mind what he's already talked about, about following Christ's example of humbling ourselves. All things we need to do without complaining and arguing. With these words, Paul is getting much more specific in letting us know what it will look like for us to work out our salvation. And it's our goal to identify what this command here in this 14th verse means and why it is important so that we can glorify our God by joyfully obeying his word in the days to come. So to that end, let's observe, first of all, what it is that's being commanded here. It is being commanded that we do everything without complaining, without grumbling. You know, there are some messages that preachers preach and they wonder, is anyone going to be affected? This is a message, I've got a feeling, everyone is affected. Do all things without complaining. I know I'm affected. In actuality, we are not being told what to do here. Rather, we are being told how to do, or better, how not to do whatever we're doing. We've been told what to do ever since chapter 1, verse 27. We've been told that we must stand firm in one spirit. We've been told that we must strive together for the sake of the gospel. We've been told that we must maintain single-mindedness, chapter 2, verse 2. We've been told that we must prioritize one another, verse 3. We've been told that we should look out for one another, look out for each other's interests, not just our own, verse 4. And we've been told that we must adopt the humble-mindedness of our Lord, Jesus Christ, verse 5. Now, however, we are being told that we must do all of those things and everything else that we do as well without complaining. In other words, we are to work with each other as followers of Jesus Christ, to work with each other for the sake of the gospel. We are to love each other and help each other without those attitudes or those expressions of grumbling, which quickly promote acrimony, disharmony, strife, division. It is possible to do the right things with the wrong attitude. And every time that is done, the wrong attitude effectively negates the good of whatever we are doing. This was also well illustrated by the nation of Israel in the Old Testament after the exodus out of Egypt. Israel was doing a very good thing. They were traveling to the promised land. 
that God had promised way back there to Abraham. And yet they negated that good that they were doing, mainly through their grumbling. They, in Exodus chapter 16, grumbled because they didn't think they had enough food, at least not enough of the right kind of food as far as they were concerned. They grumbled and complained in chapter 17 of Exodus when they didn't see any water available. They griped because they wanted different food than the food that God was providing for them day after day after day. Numbers 11. And then they whined because there were giants in the promised land to which they had been traveling all this time. Numbers 14. And may I point out that that complaining on the part of the nation of Israel was a big part of what negated their entire journey, keeping them out of the land and bringing on almost 40 years of additional wandering. For God speaks in Numbers chapter 14, beginning in verse 27. And here's what he had to say. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Then he tells Moses, say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old. And above. The point is that God is calling us not only to do the right things in the right way, He also calls us to do the right things in the right way with the right attitude. There's no place for complaining in the life of the believer. For not only does grumbling affect our relationships, among ourselves as believers. But it also involves, it also reveals a refusal to embrace, a refusal to delight in the sufficiency and the sovereignty of the God whom we claim is sovereign. Since griping is in essence saying, I know how to improve my situation. I know how to do better than God has done for me. I know how to be in a better situation than the one he chose to put me in. And of course, normally the motivation, probably always the motivation behind that is we know how to be more comfortable than we feel at the moment. We know how to be more prosperous than we feel at the moment as if God is not all wise. Well, the command is that we do everything without complaining. But there's a second part to this command, and that is that we do everything without arguing. The word for disputing here in our text is used in a very interesting gospel account regarding Jesus' disciples. 
In Luke chapter 9, verse 46, we are informed that a dispute, same word, arose among those disciples, among them, as to which of them would be greatest. Our first response may be to laugh in derision and say, oh, how childish those disciples were. But is this not the essence of all arguments? Whether the subject be about our position in life, or whether it be about who is right and who is wrong, arguing is by its very nature the violation of what we were told to do earlier here in chapter 2, verse 3. Namely, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And it makes impossible the fulfillment of the earlier exhortation in chapter 2, verse 2. The exhortation to be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So, is the apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit here, telling us that we have to be mental clones of one another? Agreeing on every little detail of life? Oh no. We know from his own example that wasn't the case. But what it does mean is that when we are not in agreement, especially as fellow believers, when we are not in agreement, if the issue is really important, then we pursue together what God says about the matter and mutually accept his word as the final word on the matter, which we are all bound to obey. Much like the Jerusalem church did, by the way, in Acts chapter 15. And if the issue is unimportant, well, we again bow to the authority of God's word. Heeding such verses as Romans 14.1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. So the command is to do everything without complaining, to do everything without arguing. Why? Why is this the command? Why are these commands presented here, especially in this portion of Philippians 2 after those grand passages that we have just seen especially in the earlier verses of chapter 2 well to put it another way let's ask what will our refusal to complain what will our refusal to argue as we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel what will that accomplish for God's glory and the answer is at least threefold, as we find it here in our text. In that this is commanded so that our Father will be honored. Notice verse 15. So that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. 
As we live out all that we are to do according to chapter 1, verse 27, all the way through chapter 2, verse 5, without complaining, without arguing, and as we hold fast the word of life in doing so, you notice we will become blameless. The world will not be able to find fault with us and charge us with unchristian attitudes unchristian conduct in these matters. And that'll make us like some very interesting people. That would make us like Job, for example, as God himself testified of Job in Job chapter 1, verse 8, saying, have you considered my servant Job, Satan? That there is none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man. The world could not make legitimate charges against him of conduct that was violating his understanding of who God is. It would also make us like Zacharias and Elizabeth. If we want to look at somebody in the New Testament who, according to Luke 1.6, were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless not perfect. Don't, don't ever get that sense from the use of the term in passages like these. But blameless, the world had nothing on which to grab a hold of and say, oh, you horrible hypocrites. They were consistent in their lives. But if we do all that we are told here in Philippians 2, without arguing, without complaining, we will also become what we have here as harmless. The word there speaks of having pure motives, unmixed motivations, unmixed with insincerity, unmixed with envy, unmixed with covetousness, all those things that lead to arguing, all those things that lead to complaining, unmixed with those motives that render even good actions to be of no value. You'll be harmless in that regard if you do all things that are pointed out here without complaining and disputing. Furthermore, you'll be without fault, above reproach, not morally defective, even in the world in which we live that is so morally twisted, so morally corrupt. May I point out that it was in part for this purpose that we were chosen by God the Father in the eternal past. That's what we were told in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Just as he chose us in him, that is God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and Without blame, same word, before him in love. It was for this reason that we would become without fault, blameless, and whatever words we want to use that say the same thing. It was for this reason that Jesus Christ gave himself for us as his church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her 
And then it ends up in verse 27 saying, He gave himself for her that she should be holy and without blemish. Same word, without blemish. It was so that we could be without blemish, without fault, blameless, irreproachable, that we were reconciled to God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. You who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. You get the idea that this is an important matter to God? This is an important matter to our Lord Jesus Christ. He died so that we could become what we become when we don't complain and argue as we live out the rest of Philippians chapter 2. By the way, I should point out the implication of what he's saying here. The implication is pretty obvious, I think, that if we are complaining... If we are arguing, we are blameworthy. If we are complaining and arguing, we do have impure motives. If we are complaining and arguing, we are needing reproach. What is significant here is that we are not to be blameless and genuine and above reproach merely for our own sake. Rather, the importance, you notice, of being blameless and so forth lies in the fact that we are children of God. In other words, it is not merely our testimony that is at stake here. It is the reputation of our Heavenly Father. Just as the attitudes and the behavior of children often lead people to have positive or negative views of their parents, rightly or wrongly, that's just the way it is. So the attitudes and the conduct of believers cause the world to have positive or negative views of our Heavenly Father. The stakes are high. And that's also seen in our second reason for this command, which we find in the last part of verse 15 on into verse 16. We are given this command to do all things without complaining and arguing so that our lights will be shining. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. <coughs> Ever been on a mountain late at night during the new moon when there's no moon shining? You look up and you see scattered all about in the deep blackness of night these bright pinpoints of light. We call them stars. How easy it is to pick out the stars against the darkness. That's because they're shining. They're shining. 
rather than being like the darkness, they stand out from it. Rather than succumbing to the seemingly indomitable darkness of outer space of this universe, the stars just go on shining. And they let the contrast of their light show the darkness for what it is. Darkness. God has placed us, we find here, as well as many other passages in his word. God has placed us in this dark, dark world to be his lights. And therefore, we must not allow our lights to be dimmed and extinguished by infighting, by complaining. So how do we shine like stars in the midst of the darkness of this world in which we live? Our answer is in verse 16. By holding fast the word of life. By holding firmly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who is the life as we know so well from that familiar passage in John 14:6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ, who is the word of life, of whom John could write that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. He's describing Jesus. Jesus Christ, who has abolished death, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel message about whom is called by the angel who released the disciples from prison in Jerusalem, all the words of this life. We shine like stars by living in keeping with the implications of this gospel which we have been seeing here in Philippians 1 and 2. This gospel of Jesus Christ becoming man, God the Son becoming man, living a perfect life, and then taking upon him the sins of his people, that he paid the penalty rather than they having to pay the penalty. He bore the wrath of God in their place so that they wouldn't have to. He gave them life, abundant life, through his redemptive work. He, the resurrected one, gave them eternal life. The implications of this gospel are that we are to walk worthily of it that we are to stand firm in one spirit, that we are to maintain single-mindedness, that we are to prioritize one another, that we are to look out for one another's interests, that we are to adopt the humility of Christ. In doing those things without complaining and grumbling, we shine like stars in the midst of the darkness of this world that does everything very differently than that. We also also shine like stars by proclaiming this good news of Jesus Christ. 
And then there's a third reason for the command that we do everything without complaining and arguing that we see as we come to the close of verse 16. And that is so that our leaders will have grounds to glory in Christ. Let's get really specific here for Redeemer Baptist Church. So that Jake and Job will have grounds to glory in Christ Jesus. That's another reason why we should do all things without complaining and arguing. Paul puts it like this, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Paul is saying this as a spiritual father to these believers in Philippi. In verse 26 of chapter 1, Paul was sure that the Philippians would have ample reason to glory in Christ Jesus because there he was confident that God would preserve him so that he would be able to come to Philippi and see these Christians once again. But now, notice Paul is wanting to turn the tables. He wants to be able to glory in Christ Jesus because of them, the Philippian believers, because of their living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. After all, the apostle was the first one to bring the gospel to these Philippians. He had watched what he believed was the genuine spiritual birth of many of them. And he wants to glory. He wants to boast. Not merely while here on this earth, but especially on the great day when he stands before Christ. He wants to say, look at what Jesus Christ did among these Philippian believers. But there will be no basis for glorying on the Philippians' account if they devour themselves and show themselves to be no different than the world by complaining and arguing with each other. If that is the case, then Paul is realizing that his efforts among the Philippians will seem to have been fruitless, empty. He will feel like he has run the race, he has exhausted himself for naught. He will have toiled strenuously, seeming, seemingly to no worthwhile end. Instead, Paul wants to glory in Christ Jesus because of the Philippians' faithful lives offered to God. In fact, notice, he takes it a step further. He says, I will be pleased to view your faithfulness as the main sacrifice to God and my own labors among you, uh, they can just be like the accompanying drink offering of the sacrifices poured out on them. Verse 17. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Why, why is he bringing that in? Well, 
Paul is referring to the Old Testament sacrifices of the tabernacle and temple in Israel, many of which were accompanied by what we call drink offerings. For example, we find in Numbers chapter 29, verse 16, the command that also one kid of the goats as a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering and added to that is its grain offering and its drink offering. When the animal, in this case here in Numbers 29, a goat, when the animal was offered as the primary sacrifice, a sin offering here, a drink offering of wine or of strong drink was poured out on that sacrifice. The drink offering was always an accompaniment. It was never the main feature. It was an addition to the main feature, the sacrificial animal. That animal being sacrificed was always the main focus of what was going on. You see what Paul is saying here? He's saying, I would be thrilled just to be the drink offering. That's all I want. I want to be the drink offering as long as your faith as Philippian believers, as long as your faithfulness becomes the primary sacrifice to God. In other words, Paul is himself exemplifying all that he has been exhorting them to do right here. He's exemplifying humility rather than selfish pride. I'll just, I'll be so very happy just being a drink offering. He's prioritizing the Philippians above himself. And he's doing so, you notice, joyfully, not with complaining. He's doing so rejoicing, not arguing with them. And so in verse 18, he urges them to have the same attitude. You want your spiritual parent, whoever that may be, whoever was instrumental, whoever was used by God to point you to Jesus Christ. You want your spiritual leaders to be glorying in the day of Christ. Then live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Faithfully working out your salvation without complaining. Without arguing. Not only will they glory in the day of Christ, but they will, like Paul, they'll be rejoicing right now. Before we ever reach the day of Christ. And if you understand the glory of God involved you will join in their joy for the same reason. Verse 18, for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. If we are truly seeking to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, what we have seen today reinforces the fact that it is not only a matter of what we do, It is also a matter of the attitude with which we do it. So being gospel-driven is a matter of motive. 
making much of the gospel, making much of the good news of who God is and what He has done in Jesus Christ, glorifying God thereby. It's a matter of motive and conduct, living in a manner worthy of the gospel. But it's also a matter of manner, joyfully, eagerly, humbly, harmoniously, with no hint of complaining or arguing among ourselves. This is what the gospel deserves. This is what the gospel demands. This is also what the gospel enables. Because the gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ who lived, died, rose, ascended, and is interceding after having sent the Holy Spirit to indwell his own people. So, as verse 14 declares, let's live in a manner worthy of the gospel in everything we do without complaining, without arguing. Father, we realize that it's very easy to forget to forget even these very basic truths. It's very easy for us even to forget that the gospel governs every single aspect, every single area of our lives. Would you use this portion of your word? Would you use this attempt to expound it, to remind us throughout this week of the manner by which we are to live. Pray in Jesus' name.